Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. Our movie today is one that I'm especially delighted to talk about because this has been one of those, and I, again, I hate to use this phrase guilty pleasure, but it really fits in this case. This is one of those guilty pleasure movies that I have just loved for years and years and years, and I'm so fond of it, and I love talking about it, and, and the movie I'm talking about, it's not a masterpiece, but it is a very, very fun psychological thriller from 1992 called The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. And again, something I'm a, a movie I've seen many times, very fond of, and I enjoy it every single time I watch it. But as my guest will probably agree with me, it is perhaps not the greatest movie in the world. It kind of skates that line of being a really, really gripping, tense uh, psychological thriller and mystery science theater crap fest. It's right in the middle. It straddles that line. It's so fun. My guest today, I, I'm bringing back, this is a someone who's been on the show before. She uh, was on my Oh God podcast a couple months ago. And that was a very tough movie to talk about because it's so simple. There's not a lot of juicy things going on. It's kind of like a two-character play. And this one is a lot more juicy. There's a lot more fun things. It's a lot more stabby. Um, so very excited. Welcome back to the show, Jessica Lease. Hello, Mario. Uh I will say there's one connecting thread here, and that's while I was watching this movie, I was like, oh, God. Oh. Oh, God. <laughs> so, okay, right off the bat, do you think this is a good movie or a bad movie? And you're not allowed to say yes. <laughs> you stole my line, man. It, it's it's a great movie and a terrible movie, and it manages to be the kind of thing that – you know where it's going all the time, and it gets there in exactly the sort of absurd ways you think it's going to, and yet there are great performances. It is legitimately scary, and it is legitimately hilarious all at the same time, and I don't know how the movie manages to do all of that at once, but it does it very well. Yeah, and and I just to back up exactly what she said, it it really is. It's 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 all things to all people. This is one of those fun movies. It's like an an ink blot test. You you take from this what you would like. But I will say, as we get towards the end of the movie, kind of the ridiculousness kind of melts away, and it legitimately becomes a solid thriller. To the uh, to the point that there's a great scene at the end. We'll get to it where one character punches the other one, and man, I wish I could have seen that in a theater because I bet the audience would have erupted in cheers. I bet they were so invested in that moment. It was it's such a fantastic because you don't know what's going to happen. You assume there's going to be screaming. You assume there's going to be yelling, and nope, just goes straight for the fist. <laughs> Okay, um, a little backstory here. This movie came out in 1992, which, for people who weren't alive or didn't follow movies, that was the year of the psychological thriller. Is, do you remember it being that way as well? I remember there being a ton of movies, and this was something I really... When you first proposed the, the idea that we were going to talk about this movie, that was the first place my mind went, was there, were, there was just that period of probably three or four years where... All of the movies in the theater were these sort of female-driven, almost beat-for-beat beat the same movie where there's 
a new woman that rolls into the lives of the characters and she's not what she seems, but she seems too good to be true at first. And then all of a sudden somebody close to them dies and somebody else uncovers a secret and she's got a vendetta. And then there's the big climactic confrontation. And there were so many of these movies. I think we had uh, sleeping with the enemy mm-hmm. And we had single white female. Mm-hmm. And of course, fatal attraction is probably the one that kind of spawned the genre or at least like kind of got the ball rolling. And then you have this one, which I think is probably the platonic ideal of the psychological thriller from this era. Platonic ideal. I like that. I've, I bet I've never heard this movie described that way before. I'm kind of shocked that you haven't because, as we just said, it's all things to all people. <laughs> yeah. This is like the uh, Goldilocks and the Three Bears of psychological thrillers. This one is just right. It hits all of the things that you want in this kind of psychological thriller. Yeah, although I do think you're underselling that genre a little bit because, yeah, there were a lot of the female-driven movies. I was specifically going to mention the single white female because I'm a fan of that one. But there are a lot of ones that were the male ones as well, like Cape Fear and uh, Raising Cain with John Lithgow. And they did uh, a sliver with Alec Baldwin. Yeah, sliver. So that was like just for about three years. This was what movies were. They were these we they were toned down horror movies. They were more domestic, more real life. And they were all psychological. And they were always trying to capture the same audience. And and for some reason, this is the one. I mean, Silence of the Lambs is the one that won the Oscar. And you could argue that. OK, that was an Academy Award winner. That's straight horror but this is the one that i always liked the most out of that bunch yeah and i was trying to think of what was the most recent one that i saw and i saw a movie probably 10 years ago called red eye that had killian murphy and rachel mcadams and i think that's the last movie i saw that really hit all of these psychological thriller notes and i have i there hasn't been one in recent memory as far as i can tell yeah, they've, I mean, again, just the way that horror and, and it's, it's hard to call these horror, but it's just the way that horror genre mutates and changes over the years. Yeah, they're not really, this isn't really in, vo- in vogue, the, these types of movies. But yeah, in the 90s, this was it. This was, I mean, there was a new movie every weekend that was like this. And yeah, so that's that's what I want to get across to people, just this wave of psychological thrillers that were coming out. And this one was one of the more over-the-top, but also one of the better ones, just because it is legitimately kind of creepy, and I will say that. And I think that's a lot of that is down to the performances of the two leads. Yes, 100%. Because it's certainly not the script. <laughs> it's not the script, although I just read this. Did you know where this movie came from, how it came about? I do not. Please enlighten me. This was a film student in New York, and she was writing this as her master's thesis. This was her final project. So it was a first-time screenwriter. It was a project for class. She graduated with her master's degree. I wish I was respectful enough to have looked up her name, but I don't remember it. But it was like a first-time script, and it was sold, and it was like this big deal that she sold it right out of uh, film school. Well, that explains why, like, Every little detail is kind of perfectly in place. This is definitely something that you could write for a class. Yeah, it, it does kind of follow a template. And yeah, it's it's very beat by beat. But even today, like my wife was watching it and she says, you know, it's very formulaic. You can see where it's going. But at the same time, it's actually pretty well thought out. Like a lot of the plot is like the 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 villain is is planning something and you can see the seeds of how she's doing it step by step and it's very methodical so it's like even though it, you can see where it's going it's not stupid 
No, it's certainly not stupid. I think, well, as we go through it, I think there are places where the lack of life experience on the part of the screenwriter becomes evident Mm -hmm. because there are a lot of things in here that are incredibly implausible um, that you may or may not know about if you have kids or if you are in, if you have some connection to the legal system, but overall it really does like it hits all the right notes at all the right times. It's not a terribly innovative story and there are no twists that surprise you but it's certainly like it's definitely crafted and polished yeah and speaking of people with life experience i should point out you have a small child at home so this movie of course is right up your alley at this point because you yourself i'm sure have hired a nanny right off the street with no references right well isn't that how you do it like they just kind of walk out in front of a school bus and you're like you you look like you got you got it all together (laughs) This person has a head and two eyes. They're clearly a good nanny. (laughs) This person has a lot of pleated khaki pants and some cardigans. That's all you need to be a nanny. Yeah. Okay. Um, Before we get too far into the movie here, I want to say two things about it before we uh, in the setup here. Number one, the star of this movie and we can talk about Annabella Siora later. I think that's how to pronounce her name. I, as an Italian, I feel horrible if I blew that name. But I want to talk about Rebecca de Mornay. I think this might be the first time anybody has in quite a while. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Rebecca de Mornay, for people who don't know, is a... Let's see. She, she kind of burst onto the scene in the early 80s, early to mid 80s, in the Tom Cruise movie Risky Business, where she played a prostitute. And she was only like 19 or something at the time. She kind of took the world by storm. And then she didn't really do much for a while, if I recall. She didn't. And then this movie was supposed to launch her onto the A-list. Yes. And it kind of never did. I can think of two other things I have seen her in. And that's it. I wonder if they're the same two things I'm thinking of. Okay, so okay, we'll, we'll go through this. So she does this movie, 1992. This is her big comeback, and it kind of launched her into a second wave of her career. And again, she didn't really do much. The next thing I remember seeing her in is The, the Shining. They remade The Shining, the Stephen yep. King miniseries. Yep, that was one of the two things for me. Okay, and then the other one is about uh, five, 10, 15 years later, she was in the movie... Uh, Identity with John Cusack, where she plays a, a, a movie star. Now that one I haven't seen. Oh, that one's fun. I was a big John Cusack person for a very long time. I haven't seen it, but I will. I will check that one out. She also wound up in um, American Reunion, which was the final film in the American Pie series of films. And of course, there's a running gag in those films where. One of the characters, Finch, sleeps with the mother of another character. And in American Reunion, Rebecca de Mornay appears as Finch's mother that then Stifler ends up sleeping with. Yes, she is. The very, I do remember. That's the other one I was thinking of. I forgot about that. Okay, yeah, Rebecca de Mornay, just this very, um, I'm trying to think. I, wanted, I did want to say iconic, but that's not quite the word. Just very distinct. She's got a look. She's very of an era. Yeah, of an era. Well, she's got a very flat demeanor. That's the one thing I've always said about her. It's like almost emotionless with these eyes that just kind of stare at you. And that's why I think she's so effective in this movie in particular because 
Peyton is so unsettling, and she has this glare where she glares at people, and I think it's fantastic. I think she was the perfect choice for this one, and I'm just going to say on the flip side of that, there's The Shining, the, the Stephen King remake, where I think she was the absolute worst possible pick for that movie, and we can't watch it at our house because my wife hates it so much. She's like, Rebecca de Mornay does not come off as maternal at any point ever in that movie. I don't buy that she's anybody's mother ever, and I hate it, so... So I think Peyton was the perfect role that she slipped into here. Yeah, I mean, she's way more maternal in this than she is in The Shining. <laughs> Man, I, just, I can't even get over how often we watch. I mean, if we watch that show, my wife will just bitch about it. She's like, look at the way she walks. Moms don't walk like that. She sways her hips. It's all wrong. How often does this come up? Because I got to be honest, I think the remake of The Shining has come up maybe twice in my entire life. We saw it when it aired because I don't like the Kubrick version, so I really wanted to like the TV version, and I think I like the TV version even less. <laughs> and then a couple of years later, I watched it again just to just to disprove, okay, it wasn't that bad. This time, I'm going to like it more, and it sucked even worse the second time, so it's, it's, it's occupied my thoughts more than it should. It, it comes up in my head every time the name Rebecca de Mornay comes up. Like, that's – my brain goes to, oh, the other thing she did that was not The Hand That Rocks the Cradle or Risky Business. Yes. Okay, but with The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, would you agree with me? She was perfectly cast. Yes. She is She is flawless in this. Um, she has this way of kind of flipping a switch and you see you see something come across her face every so often where she's doing the nanny thing and then the mask falls mm -hmm. and it's really it's really really creepy she just has that unnerving stare and i've seen her do the same thing and i've seen her do the same thing in interviews she's got that stare she just has this ice queen stare which is perfect for this role so that's the thing, that she just happened to be handed the role that she's perfect at. So I'm so happy that we have this one uh, videographic evidence of Re Rebecca de Mornay just going full evil psychopath. And when you think of some of the actresses that turned this role down, mm -hmm. it's like this would not have been a good movie if Rebecca de Mornay was not in it. All right, so I didn't read that. Who turned it down? Now I'm fascinated. Julia Roberts turned it down. <laughs> okay. Uh, Sybil Shepard turned it down. Okay. She may have turned down the role of Claire, actually. I can't remember. IMDb said she turned it down. She didn't like the script because she said it was unfeminist. Oh, oh that's right. I did read that. Okay. Yeah. And I, I think those were the main two that I saw. Yeah. And I, I remember reading that uh, Rebecca de Bournay was offered the lead of Claire. They wanted her to play the mother. Oh, dear. No. <laughs> Let's flip this, where Rebecca de Mornay is the normal one, and Julia Roberts is the psychopath. Now it's a fun movie. Actually, that might have accidentally created something brilliant. <laughs> the only way she'd be worse cast is if they cast her as Solomon. <laughs> yes. Well, luckily we had a Ghostbuster in there, so you knew that role was in good hands. Indeed. Oh, it was in hands. <laughs> okay, before we delve into the plot, there's, this movie is almost two hours long. It's longer than you think it is, so there's a lot to digest. But I do have to point out this is a personal point of pride here, Jessica. This is a rare Seattle movie, and of course, I am from Seattle. This is before Seattle got all hip in the mid to late 90s and everything got set there. This is one of the movies that was set there before, so I have a point of pride. I know exactly where all the houses are in this movie, where they were, where they were located, and I can locate every scene where it's filmed. So just a small point of pride that this movie means something to me. is It's a snapshot of my hometown. 
And it only rains once in the entire movie, which I found a little implausible. <laughs> yeah, well, the director's cut. There's like three hours of rain scenes. Okay, that, that makes much more sense. <laughs> okay, are you ready to delve into this plot? This is going to be a fun one. I can't wait. Okay, so here we go. This is really the story of two families. Um, it's the story of the Bartels, and they are the perfectly normal family in Seattle. Uh, Annabella Ciora, her husband, Matt McCoy. We'll talk about him later, by the way. I have a special level of hell for Matt McCoy. <laughs> <laughs> and their daughter, they have a daughter, Emma, and they have a new baby on the way. And uh, and that's the one family. And, and Jessica, who's the other family? Tell us about the Mott's. Uh, well, the Mott, uh, there is Rebecca de Mornay, who is Mrs. Mott, who doesn't have a first name. <laughs> and she is married to an omnipotent being. Of course, Dr. Mott is John Delancey, uh, best known as Q from the Star Trek The Next Generation and associated properties. He also shows up in Breaking Bad as an air traffic controller. And I like to believe this is all on the same continuum. Um <laughs> The Q continuum, if you will. <laughs> and apparently they also have one on the way. Yes. So this is the story of competing babies. You have the Mots who are going to have a baby. Rebecca de Mornay is pregnant. And you have uh, Annabella Siora. She's pregnant. And what happens is the, the families will be thrown together into turmoil. And we'll get to that in a second. But the movie starts with... A guy riding his bike up the street. This is where we meet who I'm assuming will be Jessica's favorite character, Solomon. Yeah. I. Why didn't Ernie Hudson get the Academy Award for this? For people who have not seen the movie, Solomon is a special needs guy. They say he's mentally disabled. He works for a or he lives at a place called the Better Day Society, and they basically send these guys out to do handiwork around the area, and this family, the Bartels, has hired him. So... The, the movie opens with a fake jump scare with Solomon biking up to the Bartel's house. He's been hired to, you know, uh, I forget what he's there for, a fence, I think. He's building a fence. And he walks up to the window, and Claire's not expecting him, and she jumps. Like, ah, oh, the scary black man shows up at her window. Classic Seattle scare. I mean, <laughs> are there any black people in Seattle? <laughs> yeah, I know. There, there's like four, four or five. So if one were to show up, it would be a little startling in the 90s, perhaps. But yeah, so there's a fake jump scare at the start where everyone's like, oh my god, who's this guy at our house? And the husband comes out, and I think this is the, the only time the husband solves something throughout this entire movie. <laughs> he's he's really quite useless. Um, I mean, at least Solomon builds a fence, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, the dad in this movie, played by Matt McCoy, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull off a reference here. I really hope you know this reference because it'll make this podcast way funnier. The dad in this movie is played by Matt McCoy, who has been in many movies over the years, but the one that I know him best from is Seinfeld. Do you know oh, who yeah. He is? Okay, good. He's Thank you. Lloyd Braun. Lloyd Braun, yeah. There's a character on Seinfeld named Lloyd Braun who's had a mental breakdown, and there's a very famous episode where they can't say anything that makes him think he's crazy because he'll have a breakdown again, and it's played the same actors in Seinfeld as here in The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. So the dad in this movie is so stupid he never figures out what's going on. He's completely irrelevant to any plot, and he's always completely fooled by the evil nanny. That my wife and I just sit there and make Lloyd Braun jokes the entire movie, and it's the funniest thing. <laughs> you know, it didn't occur to me. I've and I've seen I've seen a lot of Seinfeld. I spent most of the '90s watching Seinfeld, as did most people. And it never occurred to me that it was the same guy until you mentioned it the other day. And then I rewatched the movie and I'm like, this changes 
everything. It's a game changer. It is. <laughs> okay, for people who know the Seinfeld that episode, it's great. Just you'll go through this movie, and the dad is constantly flummoxed by everybody, and like to the point that that the nanny is hitting on him and like putting her hand down his pants. And my wife and I'll just sit there and like, am I crazy or is Peyton fondling my testicles right now? <laughs> just <laughs> it makes this movie so much more fun when you watch it that way. It, it that's amazing. Yeah, it's he was already doofy and unattractive. But this makes him, this kind of puts him back into the action. And he's got this stupidest little smirk the entire movie. Just watch this movie and watch for the dad smirking in the background. You just want to punch him every time. And he's apparently, he's a geneticist. (laughs) They had to give him a job. And architect was apparently too cliche. So he's a scientist and he wears a lab coat to work. Well, remember, George Costanza is already the architect. We couldn't use that. I I guess not. (laughs) So only our best and brightest become genetic engineers in Seattle, led by Michael Bartell, the stupidest husband ever. And he makes enough money that they have this gorgeous old house in what appears to be a really amazing neighborhood. And the wife not only doesn't have to work, she can hire somebody to take care of her baby while she's not working. And she can spend all of her time building a greenhouse in the backyard. Yeah, I, that's one of the goofy things about this movie, because this, like you said, there's several things in this screenplay. I'm assuming this is one that you were talking about that doesn't really make sense, that this family's independently wealthy, apparently, even though the dad's a moron and the mom does nothing. I don't know where they get this giant house. Maybe he's really, really brilliant at genetics and just not good at anything else. Like all of his all of his stats went to genetics. <laughs> They should re-roll Michael Bartell. He's a terrible player. Yeah. <laughs> He's a paladin or whatever. Whatever the one that's everything stacked on one one skill. Exactly. He's a geneticist paladin. Yes, he's a, he's a multi-class. <laughs> so, so we have the family here, and we have Solomon, their handyman, and it's a nice little bunch, and they all get along. And again, the handyman is played by Ernie Hudson, formerly the fourth Ghostbuster. So, and again, anything else you'd like to say about Solomon? It seems like you have a bone to pick with Solomon in this movie. Well, I don't know what I can say about Solomon without referencing the movie Tropic Thunder. <laughs> Feel free. Go for it. Well, except the movie Tropic Thunder, he really does have... He reaches through time and he pulls two future references together to create this character. And one of them is Crazy Eyes from Orange is the New Black. (laughs) And then it's about 75% Crazy Eyes and 25% Simple Jack. And that makes Solomon. So he is also (laughs) multi-class. I I guess so. He is multi-class. He has this kind of wall-eyed look and this is what he brings to the role. Like this is how he inhabits a mentally challenged man by just kind of staring off into the middle distance all the time with giant eyes and that's that's apparently how you do mentally challenged (laughs) so we have the first time screenwriter writing her first mentally challenged character along with the actor playing his first mentally challenged character so it's a double whammy that we know of i mean can you name anything ernie hudson has done other than ghostbusters um he was in ghostbusters (laughs) 2 Was he? <laughs> yes, he, I, he must have been. There's no way they cut the black guy. They're they're bringing him back for two. I know he's there. He has to be. 
Okay. I, I believe you. It's been a while since I've revisited Ghostbusters 2. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, this is our family, the Bartels, and it's, you know, typical middle American family. I guess Seattle's not middle America, but typical middle class family. And now we're going to meet, now we're going to meet their rivals, I guess. One would say the Mots. And the Mots are, basically, we're going to talk about Claire's OBGYN. And because I'm very uncomfortable talking about this, I will turn it over to our only female on this podcast. Please explain the OBGYN scene to us. Um, well, apparently, mid-pregnancy, Claire's existing OBGYN, who delivered her first child, goes AWOL, and she needs to find a new doctor. And so she goes to this guy, and he apparently violates her in some unspecified fashion, and she presses charges. And it turns out she has inspired many other women to come forward and say, yeah, he was inappropriate with me as well. And so he's getting brought up on all these charges of assault, and then he commits suicide. Yes, a, a sad ending to a, an asshole of a character. Dr. Mott, a OBGYN, a little too touchy McFeelington here. He's gets busted for it. And yeah, all these women come out and start saying he's been fondling them during uh, appointments too. He kills himself and he dies. And what happens is his estate gets frozen and his wife, Mrs. Mott, again, who has no name, Rebecca de Mornay never gets named in this movie. <laughs> she inherits nothing. Her husband dies. He kills himself. She learns he's a creep. Uh, their assets are frozen. She gets nothing. And in the stress of all the situation, she has been pregnant, and now she miscarries. She loses her baby. And she passes out in the most theatrically terrible passing out I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> oh, now, come on. Now, now you're ruining the illusion of Rebecca de Mornay stealing this movie. I mean, she does. She recovers from this. And honestly, this is the rare storytelling mishap in this movie, because I really feel like setting everything up at the top of it and revealing her secret identity. I did not remember that this was all explained to us at the beginning of the movie. Back when I saw it the first time, I had forgotten that because I had kind of had it in my head that it comes out over the course of the film and they discover her awful secret and the audience discovers it at the same time the Bartels do. And that's not true. They, they tell you everything you need to know up front. And I don't know how I feel about that. You know, that's a good point. I never thought about that before. Although when I was watching it today, I was realizing that as well. I'm like, we know the twist ending. Like we know the ending of this entire movie. It's the Bartels who are the ones who get the twist. So, yeah, so I do wonder if this movie would be more effective if you didn't know that Mrs. Mott was the nanny. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know exactly how what your entry point is. If you don't do that, it becomes like the first 15 minutes of Mary Poppins and maybe the children sing a terrible song and then and then she appears down the chimney or something. But it really I think the setup could have been a little more elegant. Yeah, and again, I guess this is where we reiterate this is a first-time screenwriter writing this in a class. Yeah, and of course, this is if it does that, it then becomes exactly like every other movie that happened over the course of this era, where you know the new person comes in and they're too good to be true, and somebody finds out their secret, and that person dies, and then everybody else finds out their secret, and then there's a confrontation. That's very rote. So. This may be, maybe she's trying to subvert it intentionally. Hmm. All right, some food for thought. I'll actually have to think about that because I'd never considered that before. 
All right, so as I consider this, let's go through the movie here. Um, so uh, Mrs. Mott loses her baby. And I should point out, in Roger Ebert's review of this movie, he called the first 15 minutes reprehensible. He hated the start of this movie. <laughs> I, and Roger Ebert does not pull punches. Yeah, no, he, he said this was a good movie, but he hates the start, and I read some other reviews that hated the start, too. Like, I don't, I don't find it that bad. It seems like it's kind of a necessary plot point to go into. If you're going to tell the story, it seems like a necessary plot point to have the, the doctor who's kind of a creep. But, uh, yeah, I mean... So that, that's been the, the grievance against this movie, that it starts off really creepy. But it's going to get kind of fun here now, where uh, Mrs. Mott, and by fun I mean she her baby died. <laughs> well, that's always a party. <laughs> it's always. So Mrs. Mott is laying in the hospital, and she her baby has died, and she has had everything stripped from her, and her life is in, in tatters. And this is where we see the scene that you might be talking about, where the leaps of logic probably don't uh, fit here where she's the legal system fails the Bartels in a big way where they flat out show on the news Mr. Mott died oh and here's the lady who accused him and started the lawsuit and they show Claire Bartel and they basically all but spell out her address and where you can go find her if you want to get revenge against her it's so weird well I think I think HIPAA came out a couple of years after this maybe well, what I what I remember is right around that time, wasn't this like there there was a there was a Kennedy that got accused of rape and the rape trial was like the first thing on court TV and this was all happening in the early nineties and every time they showed her they had a big blue dot over her face because it was totally unethical to put accusers on the news. Mm -hmm. I do remember that now, yeah. So in reality, they would not show Claire's face on the news like as the lead story. Oh, here's the woman who did it. Well, and for, for another thing, this wouldn't be the lead story even on your local news. Well, I mean, there's not a lot going on in Seattle, so maybe. Maybe. I guess, you know, the weather report takes all 30 seconds. So it's raining again. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Let's just say it's not going to be real sunny this weekend. <laughs> it's not, especially not, especially not for the Mott family. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so Mrs. Mott, everything's been stripped from her. And again, this is Rebecca de Mornay, and she's just got this evil glare. And she sees on the news the face of Claire Bartell, the woman who accused her husband of molestation. And she just glares at it. And you know, dun-dun-dun, something bad will happen. And immediately we switch to six months later. Yes. Six months later, the baby has been born, and he's played by three non-identical babies. <laughs> Now, can you tell the babies apart? Is that why you say that? I mean, I can't be like, well, that's baby A and that's baby B, but it's very clear that at least one of the babies is not identical. Um, and these, the baby is played by triplets, um, one of whom is a boy and the other two of whom are girls. <laughs> so you know they're not identical, for starters. And once you know that, it's like impossible not to see, like, that's a different baby, that's a different baby, that's a different baby. Yeah, one of the babies is like Chinese, I think, if I recall. <laughs> one of the babies has darker hair. You know, Michael Bartel is like, am I crazy or did we have a boy yesterday? <laughs> yeah. Man, that's great. See, just go into this movie watching it like Lloyd Braun, and now I didn't realize the babies didn't even look alike. But yeah, that would probably still fool Michael for a good five, six months. Oh, five, six years. <laughs> So uh, what happens? Uh, the the mom, Claire, like you said, they've had the baby. Baby, what's his name? Joe, I think. Joe. Joe. Yeah. And then uh, 
And the mom, of course, because they're independently wealthy, the mom doesn't need to work. She can just spend every waking minute out volunteering at garden centers and stuff and like building her own greenhouse. Is that your experience as a new mother? Um, my experience as a new mother is that you get work-related emails the day after your child is born. Like, when are you coming back? But then again, I'm not independently wealthy. My husband's not a geneticist. Um, and that was my first mistake. <laughs> yeah. You could have married Matt McCoy. You could have married uh, Michael Bartell here. <laughs> Apparently, I should have. They got a pretty sweet house. <laughs> that is true. They do have a great house. And I will say for anybody in the Seattle area, even though this movie is filmed in Seattle, that Bartell house is in Tacoma. It's actually very close to where my daughter goes to college. I'm actually going out there in a couple of weeks, and it's one of my bucket list items. I want to go find this house. I want to go see where it is. Um, I I have to imagine there's going to be a plaque and a statue of Rebecca De Mornay right up front. So I want I want to report. Yeah, I think they still have her corpse on the lawn. It's in the middle of the fence. <laughs> it's still impaled on the fence. Yeah, they just left her there. Yeah, no wonder we never saw Rebecca De Mornay again. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we're skipping a little far ahead here. So Claire Bartel is looking for a nanny because that's what you do when you're independently wealthy. Although I, I should say, just to go off on a side note here, I read when this movie first came out, there were a lot of people upset. They said the movie was sexist and it made working mothers look bad and it like it devalued the nanny industry. And just there was a lot of people that were actually upset about it. I didn't know that. But she's not a working mother. She doesn't have a job. <laughs> she works in the backyard. That's work. Yeah, she's not leaning into anything. <laughs> but okay, but but I will. I do have to point out that some people took offense with this movie and what it did, saying that basically it. The moral of the story is um, don't ever leave your children alone with anybody for a second. Yeah, that. And the other one, the other argument I read is that this guy, Dr. Mott, was an asshole and screwed everything up. And so what does Mrs. Mott do? She takes it out on the woman instead of being mad at her husband. <laughs> I mean, that's a valid argument. Well, he's not around to be mad at. Well, she's got to be mad at somebody. You're right. It's true. <laughs> so Mrs. Mott... Uh, disguises herself as a nanny. She wants to, she's so furious that this family has screwed up her life, she disguises herself as this sweet, humble, little, uh, what's a good word to describe Peyton? What, what's the first word that comes to your mind? What is the first word that comes to my mind? Um, sensible. Sensible, yes. So Mrs. Mott just comes and she's, like, has no makeup on and she's not made up. She's, like you said, she's wearing what the, uh, the pleated pants or whatever, and the sweater around her neck? Yeah, she's dressed like basically, she's like the back of a J. Crew catalog in 1992. Yeah, that, that's what's known as Seattle sexy. Ah, yes. But anyway, yeah, so she disguises herself as a nanny, and she shows up, and she's interviewing. She's heard that Mrs. Bartell wants a nanny, and she's so furious, and she wants revenge on this family, she's going to integrate herself in the family and just wreak havoc from within. And so we get this uh, this scene where the mom meets Peyton, and Peyton has no references and has only had one job before, has no appointment. The mom knows absolutely nothing about her, but come on in, let's give you an interview and meet the baby. I mean, Robin Williams had more references when he was Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> yes, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. So, yeah, so Peyton comes in and she interviews and, and she just kills it. She's an awesome interview. She says everything perfect and she meets Joe and uh, 
there's only one little chink in her armor, and that is that she's a psychopath. <laughs> the only person who sees this, who's the one person, Jessica, that can see through her? Solomon. <laughs> Solomon. The, the smartest male in the movie, Solomon, cracks the code. <laughs> Have you seen my baseball? <laughs> Well, you know, where where Matt McCoy's stat points all go to genetics, <laughs> Solomon is just a very, very good judge of character. He's got empathy and really he can build a fence and he's got not much else going on. <laughs> so it all went to empathy and fence building. Yes, empathy and fence building. Okay, so, uh, yeah, so Peyton interviews, and what happens is at one point Solomon shakes her hand, the special needs guy, and he gets paint on her sleeve, and Peyton shoots him the nastiest, most evil look, and Solomon's like, ugh. And, like, so right from the start, Solomon doesn't trust this person as who she says she is, but everyone else is completely snow. They love her. Oh, but you missed the, you missed the best part of that scene. Because she's got the best line right there, and the delivery on it is so, like, everyone in the room should have been like, huh? But she she looks at her and she says, that's all right. That was just an accident. Anyone can have an accident. There you go. That's a first-time screenwriter right there. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but then again, DeMornay kills it. She reads the line like Hamlet. Awesome. Yeah, it's fantastic. And it's so, it's so creepy. It's super-duper creepy. Okay, so right off the bat, they love Peyton. They love this no-name nanny nobody has any references for, and they invite her to dinner, and Peyton, right off the bat, she sees that Claire is losing earrings. She's got this earring that falls out every five minutes, and Peyton kind of sets it up to make it look like it was in the baby's crib. And she's like, oh, look, it fell out of your ear, and I saved the baby from choking, and, and the Bartels are so stupid. They're like, oh, what an amazing nanny. Let's hire you on the spot. Well, the other mistake she makes here, aside from, you know, aside from framing everybody, like, trying to feed an earring to the baby, you should already never hire someone for your nanny who brings your baby a present that makes noise. <laughs> that That is such a first-time parent thing to say that. Okay. Okay, let, let, me, let me sum this up for people. Yeah, Peyton is given the job, and she's allowed to move into the house. She's a live-in nanny. And the first thing she does is bring a wind chime, that she wants to put a wind chime in the baby's room. And my wife and I, our kids are much older. I have an 18-year-old and a 16-year-old. But I remember this specifically. Like, you go straight to hell if you bring a toy that makes noise. Like, screw you. That's the worst thing. So, yeah, I, Jessica knows of what she speaks here. This is terrible. Yeah, my kid's got this dump truck. And it plays a song, and it, it sings a song about being a dump truck if you nudge it. And it was in the middle of the floor, I tripped over it, and it sang its stupid dump truck song, and I wanted to throw the damn thing out the window. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a real shame if that dump truck gets lost, huh? Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to really suck when all the batteries die and can't be replaced. Yes. You are hearing some Parenting 101 here from people who know this. Do not ever, ever bring a gift that makes noise or plays a song. You will go straight to hell, I'm telling you right now. And again, this is how we know that the screenwriter doesn't have kids. <laughs> yes. So, Peyton brings the wind chime, and this wind chime will actually become a factor in the movie later on. So just file that wind chime away. And so Peyton is allowed to uh, move in and become part of the family and... The dad, with his derpy grin, just kind of stares at her. Oh, look at the pretty blonde girl. 
And uh, the first morning, right off the bat, this is where we learn part of what, what Peyton's nefarious plot is. What does she do? She wakes up at 3 in the morning, and Jessica, as a mother, what does she do here that's so horrible? Well, first of all, she goes in and she picks up a pillow, and it looks like she's about to smother the baby, and you're thinking, ooh, that's creepy. But what she does next, arguably creepier, she picks the baby up, and she sits down, she whips out a boob, and she feeds him. Yeah. So we'll learn later in the movie that when Mrs. Mott was pregnant, she really, really wanted revenge on the Bartels. So she's been, like, using a breast pump for six months to keep her milk up, apparently. Is that how it works? It really doesn't work that way. First of all, milk doesn't really come in until after you give birth. If you miscarry in, like, the fifth month or however pregnant she was, you're not going to get any milk. So that's point A. And point B is pumping is hard. And I don't want to get too graphic for all of you people, but I did go back to work when my son was three months old, and I pumped for another eight months after that. And it takes dedication. Like, you pretty much have to have nothing better to do. Yeah, I mean, Peyton has really dedicated to this revenge, is what you're saying. Yeah, this is, I mean, I don't put it past the character. Like, this is very on-brand for Peyton. Mm -hmm. But also... Breast pump technology, probably not great in 1992. Uh, so that's another, yet another thing here. And just scoops up the baby. And the thing that's even weirder about this, and I don't want to go too far along the path of talking about breastfeeding for the entirety of the podcast, but I don't think, like, to most babies, like, boob's a boob and milk's milk. Like, if he's going to take hers right off the bat he's probably going to continue to take his mother's and not reject her well i mean there's always the old wives tale that it only latches on to one mother is that not true i thought that was that was true no no i mean you pretty much put them on anything if milk comes out of it i mean some babies are pickier some babies are not good at it with anybody some babies are better at it with some people than others but it's not necessarily i don't think you can train a baby to just three months in to take somebody else's boob and reject all other boobs. Yeah, that was definitely a uh, sign of a screenwriter that probably doesn't have kids. I didn't think about it that way, but that is how it's presented in the movie that Rebecca de Mornay starts feeding the baby that's not hers and the baby will immediately reject his own mother. So yeah, so I mean, that's, you just have to kind of go with that's how it works or this movie won't make a lot of sense. Uh, maybe she produces chocolate milk or something. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's Rebecca de Mornay. You never want to underestimate her. She could do it. Yeah, she could. Uh, she's that dedicated to revenge. Especially when you see that breast pump, like you said, the technology is so outdated that it was basically like a hand cranking a Model T still at that point. Yeah, like it didn't even, was this even like the kind that you plug in? Because I'll tell you one thing, on manual breast pumps ain't nobody got time for that. I don't care how bad you want revenge. Okay, now I see the folly of this whole subplot. I didn't get that before. Okay, so yeah, she's got the hand, breast pump, and everything. And so uh, Peyton moves in, and she starts uh, slowly turning herself into the mother of this baby. It just it's, She's got this the long con revenge. This is, this is a very slow revenge she's got worked out here. Well, her end game is never totally clear. Like, does she want to kill both of the parents, or just the mother? Or does she just want to... To be chaotic evil on them for a period of time does she want to take the children away does she just want the baby does she want both children i feel like 
I need to know the end game for her, and it's never really apparent because, spoiler alert, she gets fenced before we really find out. Yeah, and uh, to back up your point, I should actually say that I just read an interview with Rebecca DeMornay, and she said that was her one gripe with the script. They don't really go into what Peyton's backstory or Mrs. Mott's backstory is, what her motivation is. It's very much up in the air. So she actually was right there with you on that one. She's like, I, I kind of wish they would have explained what my plan was. Yeah, it, it was – I think I must have been over the years since I first saw this movie, I was conflating it with single white female because I just kind of assumed that her end game was going to be I'm going to get the – I'm going to get the wife out of the way and I'm going to marry the husband and these will become my children. But she doesn't really seem all that interested in him and, you know, we can't blame her, but <laughs> she doesn't really – and the older child is smart enough to not really buy into what she's selling either. So that's not what it is. And I think in my head, that's what I always thought it was. And it's definitely not that. Well, I, I should disagree with you a little that the, the, the older daughter does kind of go along with it for quite a while into the movie up until the very end. Like she actually starts rejecting the mom for Peyton. So the daughter isn't quite a member. She's half of Michael's child. So she's not that bright. That's true. She's got she's got 50% of her genetics working against her in the worst way. Yes. So, and uh, yeah, I mean, at a certain point, it is spelled out that, that Peyton is trying to basically knock the wife off and take over the family, but it doesn't it doesn't show up in the plot until way later in the movie. So yeah, like at this point, she could have literally just smothered the baby, and that's the movie, and like we drop the mic and walk out of the theater, it's a 20-minute movie. Like, that's where it should have <laughs> ended, but she's going to start getting greedy and going for style points. Yeah, I, I guess so. Although, I want to back up and mention one more thing here. Mm -hmm. like after the earring incident, it sure seems like nobody in this family is going to win a Nobel Prize anytime soon because Claire continues to wear quite a lot of tiny choking hazard jewelry even after her child almost eats an earring. <laughs> I guess they cut out the scene where she like gives the baby a little ninja star to play with and like things that explode. Like, here's some firecrackers. Play with these. Well, she should have given him a ninja star for that final confrontation. Like, everybody should have had a weapon there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so here's the, the crux of the movie is that Peyton's slowly moving in and trying to take over their lives. And this is where we meet the other big character in the movie, Marlene, played by a basically a pre-fame Julianne Moore. And she's actually really good in this movie. It's practically her first role. I think it's her first big movie role, at any rate. Yeah, it's either... This, or I remember seeing her in Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, but I forget which one of them came first. But yeah, it's right around this era where she started to become famous. And Marlene plays basically their best friend. Um, she's a real estate agent. She used to date Michael. And we were introduced to her at this big double date scene where the Bartels are, are going out with Marlene and her husband or whatever. And there's a whole thing where Peyton spills, was it perfume oil on Claire's dress? It's kind of sabotage her. Yeah, and she does a lot of these tiny little things like she's in that kids in the hall sketch where they're the pit of ultimate darkness and she's doing tiny things just to make Claire's life a little bit worse. <laughs> yeah, just she's going to nitpick her to death. She's going to drive Claire absolutely insane. Although I should point out there's a great Michael Bartell moment here. My wife laughs at this one. This is one guaranteed to get a laugh every time. Because Michael will always say the worst thing, always. <laughs> Where Claire, she has this red dress she's going to wear, and she spills perfume oil on it, so she puts on this flowery dress and comes downstairs. And he literally says something like, 
I thought you were going to wear the sexy dress. Am I crazy or were you going to wear a much sexier dress? Am I crazy or was I dating someone who wasn't 80? <laughs> so my wife just always laughs at what a moron he is. Don't tell your wife she's not looking sexy. He does catch himself. He's like, no, you look great. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah, we, uh, we go on a double date and Marlene will be the skeptical friend. She will be the one person who's going to see through Peyton almost right from the start because super dad will never figure it out ever. So they're at this double date, and what is it where uh, Marlene kind of pulls Claire aside and says, you know, I don't know why you'd let Rebecca de Mornay into your house. You don't invite a an attractive woman into a power position at your, of, in your home. Are you crazy? And Claire's like, what? So <laughs> right from the start, Marlene is offering some good advice here. Yeah, and, you know, things always turn out really well for the people that are really smart in these movies. Oh, yeah, she will live a long and healthy life. Ain't nothing going to happen to Marlene. Nope, totally safe. Plot armor. Yeah. Let's have this machete fight, Dewey. <laughs> so anyway, so uh, this is where Peyton is going to start slowly edging her way into the family. And the first thing she does is she's going to start making best friends with the daughter. There's an older daughter, Emma, who's like, what, six or something like that? Yeah, she's, a, she's around six and she's got a bully. <laughs> yeah, what? this is a fun scene. I, I love the scene. Why don't you walk people through this one where Peyton is going to go protect Emma against her bully from school? So, yeah, Emma's getting harassed by this six-year-old menace, and Peyton rolls up, and with 20 witnesses and apparently no other adults within a one-mile radius, she physically assaults a six-year-old boy and threatens his life if he ever bothers Emma again. And there are no repercussions. <laughs> yeah, this is back in the glory days when you could just walk onto a school campus and threaten a kid. <laughs> yeah, my wife, she oh, always... memories. Yeah, she points this scene out as well as one of her favorites. Like, whoa, what point in time was this when you could do that, when you could walk into a campus and nobody cares? <laughs> It's the good old days. Yeah. So Rebecca de Mornay literally takes the six-year-old boy, twists his arm above his head. And what's the exact quote here? She says, leave Emma alone or I'm going to rip your fucking head off. <laughs> Peyton maybe is not quite as polished as you think she is. No, I think that was perfectly polished. <laughs> yeah, but she and Emma have a bond. That's the thing here. She and Emma have a little thing where the secret club. And oh, yeah. We're going to keep secrets from your mother and... And I think Emma is the one that drops that says, oh, my daddy used to date Marlene. They went out when they were kids. And Peyton's like, huh, I could use that later, I bet. That's that's true. They got their like little fingers crossed secret club. Yeah. So nice job, Emma. Loose lips sink ships, Emma. <laughs> you know, maybe she just kept all the secrets forever. We wouldn't be in this mess. Okay, so Peyton is slowly starting to move in on this family's life, and she's got the daughter on her side, and she's breastfeeding the baby. So the next thing she's got to do is start sabotaging the husband, which admittedly is not going to be hard. <laughs> this guy practically sabotages himself. Okay, so so Michael, the famed moron-slash-genetic engineer, has an EPA proposal that must go out today. So apparently he waits until the very last minute to send these things out so there's no margin of error. I think that's how this works. And he makes one copy? <laughs> one copy, yes. He wrote it all out by hand. <laughs> he, he did calligraphy. He was like one of those scribes back in medieval times. One copy is all we get. 
And he doesn't mail it himself. He's far too busy and important to do that. Yes. He's like uh, Mark in the room. He's very busy. He can't be possibly be bothered to mail his completely uh, important EPA proposal. So the wife, Claire, says, well, I'll take it. I'll mail it out. I'm sure I can get it out on time. And this is where Peyton's going to have one of her great uh, sabotages in the movie. And she goes, she goes ham on this envelope. Like the envelope gets the worst treatment of anybody in the movie. Yeah. Okay. I'll I'll lead up to the scene here. Um, Peyton is with Claire, and they're at his garden that uh, Claire volunteers at, and and Peyton's telling her life story. She's like, "Well, you know, my husband was murdered. They never found who did it. You know what goes around comes around." She's kind of hinting, "I'm gonna kill you." <laughs> and then she she pulls the envelope with with Michael's EPA proposal out of Claire's purse and uh, excuses herself to the, the restroom. And I think the the proper phrase is she goes medieval on it here. Yes. Yes, she she grabs a plunger, she rips it up into pieces, she flings the pieces around, she gets a plunger, she starts screaming. People outside the bathroom are like, I hope I didn't eat what she ate. <laughs> That's a Seattle person's first experience with Mexican food. <laughs> Never had salsa before. She's dying in the bathroom. <laughs> But it is kind of neat how she just like she finishes destroying the bathroom stall and all of the pieces of paper and then immediately composures back. And this is like classic De Mornay. And then she walks out like nothing happened. Yeah. So she actually, yeah, she just absolutely goes crazy in this bathroom stall. And it's a great, it's, it's a fun acting performance. If you, you don't really get to see a lot of actresses have that kind of rage in a movie, like physical rage. So De Mornay is having a fun time. You're just going crazy and pounding the crap out of this bathroom stall. But yeah, then she walks out and, and Claire can't find the EPA proposal. Oh no. Michael's one copy of calligraphy that he he'd never made a backup. We're, we're going to lose the bid, his job. He's going to lose his job. And so this is where we see Claire's great weakness, which is one of, it's really kind of goofy, but it actually factors really well in the end of the movie where if Claire is faced with stress at any point at all, she will have a complete asthma attack breakdown. Yeah, and it's it's pretty it's pretty rough. And she's got inhalers stashed all over the house. Um, she's got one in her bag. She's got them in the kitchen drawer, and she has the inhaler, and immediately she's better because that's how asthma works. Yes, but this will come into play later. And it's again, as much as we're joking about this movie, the last fifteen minutes is actually really good and really gripping, and it's got one of my favorite endings of any movies in the '90s. So we'll get there. And the asthma plays a key role. Indeed. Okay, so Claire has screwed up, and she lost Michael's EPA proposal, and he's going to get fired or whatever, and she's devastated, and all of a sudden, all this bad news is happening around her, and she's like, you know, and the baby, I try to breastfeed the baby, and he doesn't latch on anymore. It's like the baby's rejecting me. I think I think something's wrong. And of course, here's Super Dad saying, oh, he's fine. <laughs> so, never mind, he solved it. He's got his medical degree. He, so, we'll just won't worry about the baby feeding part, because Dad took care of it. Well, he's gaining weight, apparently. It's like, well, what's he eating? <laughs> is he sneaking into the fridge at night? <laughs> Does your kid sneak into the fridge at night? Is that what they do now? Uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely what they do. Um, I had to lock the liquor cabinet. <laughs> that's a happy kid. Indy. So again, things are going poorly for the Bartels since Peyton has shown up. And now Peyton's going to go to phase, I think, D of this plan. I'm not sure what stage we're on here. but uh, Well, she has like the short cons where she just kind of like messes with their stuff and like rearranges their 
toiletries and whatnot. And now she's going into like the medium con and then she'll do the long con. Yeah. I mean, she's really bored is really, (laughs) she doesn't have a lot to occupy her time during the day, really. Yeah. Caring for kids. Like he's three months old. He's a loaf. You can put him down and he's still there when you come back. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so this is where Peyton's going to plan her most elaborate ruse, yeah, where she's basically going to set up that it's going to look like Michael and Marlene are having an affair. And it's this really long, intricate storyline where she goes to Michael's work, and she's like, I think we should have a party for Claire, for your wife. You know, she feels so bad, and we could have a surprise party, and we could have you and Marlene plan it, and you guys just sneak off together and have all these secret dates together, and I won't go. How about we do that? And the dad's like, yeah, that sounds great. Thanks, Peyton. He's yes-anding her. (laughs) It's a great scene, and there's... Scenes here where he, like, sees Peyton at night walking around in the house in her little flimsy nightie, and he's got that stupid dork grin on his face like, hey, look, we got a hot nanny. (laughs) Am I crazy or is she hotter than my wife? (laughs) And she shows up at work and his one coworker is like, hey, you hitting that? And he says, why would I do that? That doesn't make any sense. I have a wife. (laughs) You've seen me. I'm Michael Bartell. Do you think I could possibly hit that? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, the co-worker's giving him way too much credit. I know, yeah, those workers are way too high on this guy. This guy is like, he's like entry level. There's no way he's a manager. <laughs> okay, so we got this uh, this pl- this uh, uh, surprise party being planned and, you know, Peyton's arranging it. And Peyton, of course, is never there. It's always Michael and Marlene sneaking off to plan stuff. And there's a subplot that he only smokes when she's around. So Claire's going to catch on. But anyway, there's something that happens that's more important. We're about to get the fall of Solomon. And this is a this is a element of the plot that's I think this might upset the feminists like more than anybody else. Um, it actually reminds me another movie of this era, maybe a little bit later, was The Crush with Alicia Silverstone, yes. where she plays this Peyton-esque character. And framing someone for rape is just about the most evil thing that anybody ever does in a movie. Yeah. And not only does she frame someone for rape, she frames the mentally disabled guy for rape. For raping a child. This is, like I said, this movie's goofy, and you can laugh at it, but you get to this part about halfway through the movie, and this is where my wife even is just like, I hate Peyton. I want to kill Peyton, because this is the scene where she really crosses the line. And, uh, yeah, I understand your favorite character, Solomon. We're about to lose him. Any last words here? I feel terrible. It's just like he's he's the only guy that's got a prayer of unlocking this mystery and saving everybody, and he just never gets a chance. Yeah. Okay, so here's what happens for those who have not seen it and were having a good night and hadn't heard about the storyline before. I apologize in advance. Where Solomon is up on a ladder. He's painting. Again, the, the Bartels have, have hired him to paint their house. And as he's up on a ladder, he sees Peyton breastfeeding the child. And even in Peyton, in uh, Solomon's limited intelligence, he's like, that's not how this is supposed to work. So he realizes that something's not right here. Yeah, and he, of course goes to Peyton for clarification. Well, I I would say she goes to him for clarification. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Peyton realizes she's been caught, and she basically corners Solomon, and it's a very uncomfortable scene on the side of the house where she, like, 
stands up right in Solomon's face, and he's way bigger than her. Picture Ernie Hudson and little Rebecca de Mornay, but she's so aggressive and glaring at him, and she starts in on this little speech. What'd she say? I will. I apologize for these words, but I will quote them as is in the movie. She says, are you a retard? Did you like looking at me? Then she slaps him, and she's like, don't fuck with me, retard. My version of the story will be better than yours. And she really goes from sweet to evil in 0.5 seconds. And it's it's another one of those great, like the mask falls off, this is who she really is. And it's a very disturbing and upsetting scene. And it gets even worse from there. Yeah, it's going to get worse. That's the thing. You think this is the worst one. But Solomon even says, he's like, I'm not going to let you hurt them. Says it under his breath, not to her because she would kick his ass. But he does do his little monologue here. And the very next scene is Claire's uh, Peyton pulling the mom aside and saying, you know, I know you guys like Solomon, but I've been seeing some very problematic behaviors. I see, you know, sometimes the way he touches her or looks at her and it's like he's getting off on it. And the mom's like, what? Solomon? No way. We love Solomon and Claire. And Peyton's like, oh, no, don't worry. It's it's nothing. Just uh, just forget I said it. And, of course, the mom's not going to forget it. And then we get to the cart scene, the uh, fix-it cart. Oh, this is uncomfortable. That's why I've chosen you to talk about this one. <laughs> oh, I don't want to talk about this one. They find a pair of the girls' underwear inside the handyman's cart, I guess. Um, is this a thing that your handyman has? Is like he has his own little cart, and is this Solomon's cart, or is it like a cart that the Bartels own that they gave to him? A lot of questions here. No, this is Solomon's cart. We see it throughout the movie. He's got this little thing that he travels around with, his little fix-it cart, and it's got all his tools and stuff. And Peyton basically plants a pair of Emma's panties in his cart. And so one day when Claire is looking through the... Uh, the cart she sees the panties and she puts two and two together that solomon's been molesting her daughter and she just starts slapping solomon and this poor guy he has no idea what's going on and claire's and peyton's just off to the side just glaring at solomon saying see see i'm gonna win and peyton put all the wheels of this in motion she had to think like she had to play some fourth dimensional chest here where she's like okay, we take the batteries out of something, and she says, well, maybe there are batteries in Solomon's cart. I think I saw he had some. And so then Claire goes to get the batteries out of the cart, and then she finds the underwear that we planted. And Peyton had to kind of set this all up to knock it all down. Yeah. No, it's, again, yeah, it's 100% Peyton. And like I said, this is where, when my wife is watching, this is where she turns. And she's no longer making fun of this movie. Now she hates Peyton. And yeah, Peyton just, Rebecca de Mornay just gives the most evil glare to Solomon as he gets hauled off by the cops, and she's framed him for molesting this little girl. And the girl's screaming. She can't understand why her best friend is being taken away. Yeah, so so Peyton is really crossing the line here. And it, it gets even worse in this next scene. My wife was just watching this one today where the little girl goes to Peyton. She's like, why? Why did they take Solomon away? He was my best friend. And Peyton's like, well... I guess your mom just didn't like him very much. <laughs> She's like, I wanted to help Emma. I tried to stop her. I was worried she'd send me away too. So it's just me and you against your mom now. I won't be mean like she is. It's pretty brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> if it took her six months to come up with all of this, this was time well spent. Yeah, you got to tip your cap to Peyton at a certain point. Yeah, it's it's terrible to watch when it's, you know, when you empathize with the Bartell family, but objectively, she's pretty smart. It's pretty good. Yeah, it does the thing. If there's no disputing she's the smartest character in the movie. I think it goes Peyton and then Solomon. Yep. 
So Claire probably, and then Emma. No, Emma, and then Claire. And then the triplets, the babies, right? Yep, and then the triplets. And then Michael? Marlene. Oh, Marlene. Oh, she's up there. Yeah, forgot about her. Oh, yeah, her. Marlene is up there. She's probably like right around Solomon and Emma. She's like between Solomon and Emma. But Michael's last. We know that, right? Michael is dead last. <laughs> He's under the triplets who are three weeks old. <laughs> yes. Okay, so, so again... Just horrible things happening to this Bartell family, and this is where Peyton's other fourth-dimensional chess game is going on, where she's setting up this affair between uh, Michael and Marlene, and Peyton is what? She plants a lighter. She takes uh, she takes uh, Marlene's lighter and puts it in Michael's shirt or something like that? Yeah, and then I assume, we didn't see this, this is probably in the director's cut, um, but then I assume she tells Claire, oh, you got to take this shirt to the dry cleaners. Yeah. And make sure you check the pockets, because sometimes you leave stuff in there. Sometimes your earrings might fall in there, Claire, because they're falling out every five minutes. <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff here where Marlene and Michael are off planning the surprise party, and Peyton, of course, is back at the house, helpfully saying stuff like, why is Michael so late tonight? Why why is he at the office so late? Why don't you go call him? And Claire calls, and he's not there. So, And he comes home smelling of cigarette smoke. So Claire is just easily bamboozled here. She is completely at the whims of Peyton at this point. Yeah, yeah, she's really... I'd, I'd Actually, I'd rank, the, I'd rank the triplets above Claire at this point. <laughs> okay, well, that's uh, strong words there from Jessica. <laughs> so this is where we get Marlene, I think. Marlene comes to the house for the first time, and she meets Peyton and sees the dynamic. And Marlene, right from the start, says, this is crap. There's no way you invite this woman into your house to raise your baby. And Marlene just looks around and sees how much, how much power Peyton has and hates it. But she does make a, a curious plot point development here where she sees the wind chimes, those stupid, noisy wind chimes that Jessica hates so much. Marlene looks up and says, what an obnoxious sound. And she remembers these wind chimes. And they will come in handy later in the movie. Yes, because Marlene is a very important real estate agent. And she sells fancy houses, including this house that was owned by this doctor that killed himself. It happens to be the same doctor that molested her best friend. Okay, so a couple things are going to come to a head here at the end of the movie is that we're going to have the surprise party and Claire is going to absolutely flip out of the surprise party because she thinks Michael's having an affair with Marlene. She's going to scream, you're effing Marlene, while Marlene is right in the other room. It will all go very poorly. Again, you got to tip your cap to Peyton on this one. This is a really good move. Well, this probably paid off even better than Peyton imagined. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, yeah, this is a home run. Although, Peyton's yeah. starting to get a little greedy here, where she starts openly flirting with Michael, trying to hit on him. Yeah, but that's not going to go anywhere. <laughs> well, that's not really a challenge. I mean, that's like like Shaquille O'Neal says he's going to play basketball against a little five-year-old. Like, that's about how, well, how much of a match Michael's going to be against Peyton if she really goes for it. Yeah, so you, you're saying you don't think she's really going for it here? Yeah, she's bored. She's half-hearting it. I mean, he's there. He's got a penis. She's like, I could probably do something with that. But she's like a cat batting around a mouse at this point, I think. Yeah, but she fails at this. Like, she she tries to go for it, and he's like, meh. <laughs> you, you shut your mouth, Jessica. There's no way that Michael rebuffed Peyton. There's no way. He's like, I'm already married, and I understand that when you sign the marriage license, that means you're it's frowned upon when you sleep with other people. Yeah, but that's his first line of defense, and then she stops. Had she gone to the the uh, 
the Karakon, the chess move where you go around the piece instead. She totally would have got him the second time. So I refuse to uh, to back up your libelous accusations that he in any way has outsmarted Peyton. He hasn't outsmarted her. He's just not picked up what she was putting down. <laughs> Am I crazy or is the nanny's hand down my pants? <laughs> I think he's so stupid he doesn't realize she's hitting on him. <laughs> Oh, Peyton, you dropped some ice cube on your perky bosom. Let me help you with that. (laughs) Wool over his eyes, man. Easily bamboozled, man. Three steps behind, man. (laughs) I was... Have you seen the, uh... The old SNL sketch with Joe Montana where he's very literal and he always says what happens to be in his mind? I think so. Okay, that's what I always think of when I see Michael in this movie. Whatever is in his mind is what he will what will come out like. Hi, oh great, I'll see you tomorrow. Like that's what he's thinking, so that's what comes out of his head. <laughs> yeah, that's about that's about right. Okay, so again, Claire has accused her husband of an affair, and uh, she's lost her friendship with Marlene. She's lost her baby. Her mom, her her daughter Emma hates her. Just this is so terrible and just everything is horrible. And this is the point where Claire actually does something smart where she says, you know, Michael, everything that's bad in our life has happened since Peyton got here. (laughs) And Michael, Michael, the brain surgeon, his first instinct is, oh, no, she's great. Not Peyton. I mean, she's so sensible. She has so many cardigans. Yeah, the cardigans. Exactly. (laughs) So the Claire is like, you know, everything in our world has turned to crap. Let's let's go on vacation. Let's just go somewhere without Peyton. And let's just, just just be us again. And of course, because all characters in this movie must be stupid, they say this with a baby monitor on. <laughs> and also, does Peyton never have a day off? Like she just lives in the house and she's on call twenty four seven because they're terrible employers. You know, there's got to be some kind of labor regulations where Peyton's gotta have a day off like she's gotta go take some time for herself so you picture her like ferris bueller taking a red sports car and driving around seattle yeah and she goes to she goes to the top of the space needle and she like takes a selfie and she goes to a mariners game and (laughs) yeah peyton's day off again the director's cut maybe that's in there somewhere because yeah I, i agree she never has a day off and we never do figure out how long this movie goes like is she there for three months six months nine months i'm not entirely sure yeah, and you would think, like, the baby would be getting bigger, but I guess it's hard to tell when there's three different babies. <laughs> yeah. And you know Michael can only write one EPA proposal per year with his calligraphy skills, so there's no way this movie lasted. It, was, it had to be at least, like, nine to 12 months, somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah. But but any longer, he might have thought to make a copy. All right, so this is where Peyton realizes the jig is about up. They're starting to maybe realize that they don't need a nanny. Maybe they're happier without one. And this is where the shit hits the fan, and Peyton's like, well, I guess we're going to stop playing around with these people, and I'm just going to kill Claire. (laughs) So, all right, enough of this game. Enough of the fun. Now for the murder. Yeah, I'm going to stop playing with my food and just eat it. Exactly. See, as a parent, that's the parent. That's the lesson you teach to your child. Yep. So maybe just Peyton, what she needed was a mother here to tell her, just just go through with it. Just kill them. Yeah, it's it's too bad there's nobody in this movie that's a good mother figure at all. <laughs> well, there's hope for Emma. Maybe Emma one day will be. It's possible. I mean, she, she was very gentle with her little brother. <laughs> that's true. Okay, so, so Peyton is going to kill Claire, but in classic Scooby-Doo tactic, it's not going to be a direct kill. We have to set up something elaborate. Like a little trap for her. It was like a little Rube Goldberg device. 
and I have long maintained that whatever what this thing that she sets up would not have killed anybody, at least not the way it, it's shown in the movie. Yeah, but it, I mean, that's probably true. I don't know that this has ever been tested. <laughs> there should be a Mythbusters episode. Maybe there is. They they were on for like twenty seasons. Okay, so Peyton's plan here is to kill Claire by... Claire has a greenhouse outside, and Peyton's going to rig up the glass ceiling at the top, where if you open the door, all the glass is going to shatter, fall down, and kill somebody. Which, again, I'm not sure that's a a guaranteed kill. That seems more like a... It's going to cut, and you're going to bleed out. But, again, it's first-time screenwriter, and we'll just go with it, because it's more exciting this way than... I guess if Peyton just stabbed her with a knife, it wouldn't have been as fun. Yeah, and... To be clear, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, this greenhouse trap does eventually kill somebody. Yes. And for a second, it almost looks like Peyton knows exactly who's going to go in there and when, and she sets it for that person. But I, I can't tell because at this point, if she did set it and it kills Marlene, then Peyton has outsmarted Marlene. Peyton is the smartest person in the movie. Yes. But – there's a possibility that if Marlene doesn't actually go to the house, she might have foiled everything that Peyton was doing. Like, maybe that was just a really lucky break. I can actually answer this because I just read this today. In one version of the script, Peyton sets the trap and it kills Emma, the little girl. Ooh, that's dark. Yeah, they actually had that in the script and they changed it. They decided, no, nah, we can't do that. So she is trying to kill Claire. If you watch really carefully, they don't really spell it out in the scene. Claire is supposed to be working in the greenhouse this day. Peyton has said it, so it will kill Claire. But Claire calls an audible. She gets up to the line of scrimmage and changes her idea. She's like, well, I'm going to go into work today. And Peyton's like, what? You're not going to go out there? So it was designed to kill Claire. So what happens is just a happy accident, just a, you know, a plot convenience playhouse here. We're going to kill Marlene by accident instead. That's almost disappointing because it makes Peyton slightly less diabolical. Peyton never commits any deliberate murder. Yeah, well, I mean, she was trying to kill Claire. She was trying, but she never actually, like, no jury would convict her of first-degree murder at this point. Oh, exactly. And you know, it should have killed Michael. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. <laughs> you know, Michael almost dies like five to ten times a day just in his lab, so that's why I was, I was kind of hoping she'd take him out here, but... Okay, so it's kind of convoluted. I will run through it really quick here, unless you'd like to. How how do we get Marlene into this house here? Well, Marlene starts putting it together. Like She sees the wind chimes in the tiny grainy photo of the Mott mansion, and she puts together that the wind chimes there, and the wind chimes, she goes to the library and looks it up on the microfilm, which, P.S., it's a, it was a really sad day when microfilm stopped being a thing because movies are and research are just not as much fun anymore. Um, the internet, internet is less interesting. Yeah. And when you see somebody Googling something in a movie, it's really not as much fun as somebody scrolling through the microfilm. Agreed. Yeah. So she figures out that Peyton is Mrs. Mott and she goes to tell, she goes to tell Claire and she calls up to the botanical garden and she leaves a message and then she goes to the house and, she looks for Claire in the greenhouse, and instead she finds the trap. 
She does, but not before she confronts Peyton. This is the first time in the movie someone has figured out who Peyton is, that Marlene knows that's Mrs. Mott, the widow, and she comes in the door to the Martell. She's like, hello, Mrs. Mott. And Peyton's like, no, please don't tell. No, please. And she's like, don't, whatever you do, don't go out into the death trap greenhouse I've set up, like the Br'er Rabbit here. Yeah, so I guess she does sort of push her into, she's like, all right, I got that trap. I can just send her to the trap. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So there you go. For legal reasons, Peyton may have committed a crime at this point. I guess she did. I guess she did kill somebody. All right. We'll check with our legal experts. I have a a crack legal team here on Staff Picks that will look into this for us. Can you call Brad Culpepper? I hear he's a lawyer. (laughs) Yeah, we'll get Brad on here. Okay, so... So the the glass falls and kills Marlene, and again, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure that's a that's a, a uh, guaranteed kill. But in the movie, the glass falls and kills her. So the one person who could foil Peyton is dead, and now Peyton's like, well, fuck it, I can just I've killed already. I've tasted blood. Let's just kill some more. And this is, I, I especially like the diabolicalness of this plan. Is that a word? She knows Claire's going to come home and freak out when she sees the dead body, so she drains every one of Claire's asthma inhalers. She's like, you're going to have a slow, lingering death, bitch. Watch this. Yeah, and I don't know. You have to have pretty severe asthma for that to kill you. Am I right? I mean, I I have asthma, but I don't think it ever came close to killing me, even when I ran out of inhaler. Well, you remember the air quality in Seattle is terrible. Oh, wait. No, it's actually really good. No, I'm not sure. Well, it's how not she- right now. See, I don't want to date this podcast, but yeah, at the moment, maybe it's not so good. But in general, there should be nobody with asthma in Seattle because it's got the best air ever. But yeah, she apparently has death asthma where Claire is going to die if she doesn't get an inhaler. So, And that's what happens here. Peyton slowly drains all her inhalers. Claire comes back and sees the dead body. And she's like, <gasps> and she basically dies she would die but what happens is right before she goes out she manages to call 911 the ambulances come and save her so she doesn't die and there's a great shot of Peyton seeing the ambulances coming and she's like ah crap (laughs) she had it she was so close ah foiled again Okay, yeah, so this is the really the end of the movie here Claire goes to the hospital and she recovers and while she's away Peyton's back in the house and Peyton's putting the moves on Michael and as Jessica would say, he rejects her. As I say, he's too stupid and she gives up. <laughs> it's it's not a challenge. I cannot I cannot live in a world where he outfoxes her. Well, I don't think rejecting her is the same as outfoxing her. I think it's just like, oh, I don't think I'm supposed to, so I'm not gonna. I read my marriage vows. They say I am not allowed to date another woman, so I will not. It was pretty clear on this point. <laughs> Am I crazy or am I married to a girl already? <laughs> oh, he won't disturb me. I'll be in my room masturbating. So anyway, Peyton is moving in on the family. She's hitting on Michael. She's bonding with Emma. She's feeding the baby. And it's really her family at this point. And she's tried to kill Claire. It hasn't worked. But it's it's about to come to a head because Claire's going to come home. And this is where the fun part of the movie comes in. And again, this is where this is legitimately a good psychological suspense th- thriller at the end here because a lot of uh, we're going to get a lot of violence here in the last 15 minutes. Yeah, it, it really you could fast forward through most of this movie and just like pick it up in the last 15 to 20 minutes and you get all the best parts. Well, except for the uh, when uh, Peyton threatens Solomon and she beats up the little kid. Watch those scenes. Those are good. 
Right, right. Like if if you're if you're really pressed for time, watch those scenes and then watch this last bit where it all comes together when everybody's on the same page, they know what she is, except Michael who never really figures it out. I'm not sure he ever knows that Peyton is bad. It's now 26 years later. I don't think Michael has figured it out yet. He's like, didn't we have a nanny? What happened to Peyton? <laughs> okay, so uh, I'll, I'll lead us to the ending here, up, up to the ending. Claire comes home from the hospital, and she sees that Peyton has put up this distinct, what is it, like a banner or a bunting or something in the baby's room? Yeah, it's like a wallpaper border of um, very 1992 teal and magenta sea turtles. These are like... Um, florida marlins colors (laughs) yes big peyton's a big marlins fan so she's put up this uh this banner or this uh, wallpaper and claire sees it and doesn't like it and claire nobody would like it (laughs) well except for peyton among peyton's many crimes is that wallpaper (laughs) she's committing fashion crimes now (laughs) yeah above and beyond the pleated pants (laughs) okay so claire senses that something's wrong. She doesn't like that Peyton's moving in on the family, and I don't know how she has not figured it out yet, but she's just was just a suspicion at this point. And what is she? She finds a message in her coat that Marlene had tried to call on the day she died, and she's like, why was Marlene trying to call me? And she goes and sees the house listings Marlene was looking at. She goes and realizes one of them is the Mott House, the, the doctor who molested her many months ago. And she goes into the Mott room, the house, and she sees there's a baby's nursery in there. And it's got the exact same goddamn banner, the, the wallpaper. And not only that is there, there's the, uh, the breast pump. And she puts two and two together. She's the only person in this movie who can, who can put two and two together. She's, She's like, the only one who knows what a breast pump is. <laughs> yes, exactly. She, the realtor, the realtor who's showing her has no idea. He's like, what is that toy? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like pumping technology was far enough along in 1992 that you'd be able to identify what something is. But <laughs> I could be wrong. And maybe that guy just doesn't have kids. Yeah. Is that an Iron Maiden? Is that a torture device? What is this thing? <laughs> So Claire puts two and two together. Oh, my God. That that was Mrs. Mott. Mrs. Mott had the breast pump. She's been pumping her milk. This is her wallpaper. Mrs. Mott is in my house. She's the one trying to steal my family. And again, this is a great moment where I'll let you do this one because this is the one that I wish I had seen in the theater. I didn't see this movie until a couple months later on VHS. But Claire comes home and she realizes what's there, what's going on. And she confronts Mrs. Mott. She confronts Mrs. Mott and then... She just walks right up to her and drops a lightning quick jab straight into the nose. It's beautiful and she falls over and it's, it's so quick and so great. And she gets back up and her, you know, she's bleeding from her nose and she's like, what was that all about? And then we get the confrontation that you think they were about to have, but first we got to get punched and it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful shot. Yeah. Now, I defy anyone not to cheer a little bit when Rebecca de Mornay, after all the crap she's doing in this movie, gets absolutely popped right in the face and goes flying over a table. It's a one of the all-time great movie punches. You love it. Hi, Claire. We were worried about you. Welcome to Earth. Yeah, it's it's really beautiful. But I do like how she, again, like she picks up the mask and she straightens herself up and she says, okay, fine, I'll leave. I'll just go get my baby and I'll be on my way. I mean, uh, I'll just go get my things and I'll be on my way. That's real smooth, Peyton. 
And I love how the dad is ineffectual. Michael has no part in this entire confrontation. He has no idea what's going on. It's like, am I crazy or did you just punch our nanny? (laughs) No clue at any point in this movie what's happening. He's like, I guess I'll back you up. Yeah, you should probably leave. Um, Yeah, don't bother to pack. I guess somebody will do that for you. Yeah, and in terms of our standing in front of the fridge tonight with you half-naked date, that is off, young lady. We will not be doing that. It's canceled, or postponed at least. (laughs) Yeah, at least two weeks. (laughs) Come back and try again. So anyway, Peyton leaves, and she's like, fine, I'll be going, and you guys just don't know what it was like, and, you know, it was very hard for me, but I apologize for what I've been, I put you through, and she leaves, and... So, spoiler, that will not be the last of Peyton. We're going to see her one more time. And Michael's like, oh, I guess that's the end of that. What's for dinner? Fixed. <laughs> Good thing I was here, honey. We solved that. <laughs> but, oh, she back. Yeah. Okay, so later that night. So, basically, Peyton leaves, and now we're in the last ten minutes of the movie, the big showdown where, where Michael's sleeping and he hears an alarm down in Peyton's room, and he sneaks down there. He's like, oh, Peyton, is that you? And it's not. It's just her alarm. But surprisingly, Peyton manages to outfox him. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, she shows up with a shovel, and she whacks him, and he falls over the stairway and down the, down to the into the basement, and his like, leg is broken. So, And that's the last we see of him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Surprise. Michael would be a non-factor in the rest of the movie. <laughs> yep. He's like, little help and at a certain point claire goes down to check on him he's like i'm fine i'm fine my legs are broken he's like honey the nanny who's half my size overpowered me help me i'm just a geneticist i couldn't possibly have seen this coming yeah and so he just stays there in the basement they don't even go back and help him later he could still be down there it's like Velma with her glasses. He's out of the action the rest of the movie. <laughs> so anyway, so uh, Peyton goes upstairs, and I kind of forget what happens here. Claire shows up, and Peyton batters her with a with a shovel and knocks her out. And then Peyton goes to take the baby, because that's all she has ever wanted this entire movie. She wants the baby, and she sees Emma. And this is where Emma finally catches on that maybe Peyton's not the greatest nanny in the world. And Emma somehow tricks Peyton into going into a different room and locks the door. So, like, yay, Emma, go girl power. Yeah, outfoxed by a six-year-old. <laughs> yes. The, we're going to rearrange the uh, level of intelligence. Who's the smartest? Yeah, Emma in just shot to the top of the power rankings. <laughs> yes. Emma. See, Marlene's dead. So now Emma's number one. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe Emma wanted it that way. Do you ever think of that? Um, it's, it's, so if, you, if you're watching this movie from Emma's point of view, perhaps, yeah. Yeah. So, and then Emma takes the baby and hides. And then we get to have the attic showdown. We are going to have a beloved character from earlier in the movie. Jessica's favorite, one might say. A beloved hero is going to emerge from the ashes like the mighty phoenix. Jessica, who might that phoenix be? The triumphant return of Solomon, who's apparently, ever since he was dismissed, he's just been hanging out outside their house, and in no way is that weird. <laughs> yeah. he is, he's a registered sex predator now, but it's fine as long as he stays right off their property in the street. It's cool. <laughs> yeah, he's like he's measured it out. He's 50 feet from a school, and he's like 50 feet from the property. <laughs> I love this movie, by the way. <laughs> 
So yeah, Solomon shows up in the attic, and there's this big showdown where Peyton's trying to get the baby, and Emma's fighting, and Solomon's there, and Solomon's trying to help. And all of a sudden, uh, and uh, from her deathbed down in the kitchen, Claire, the mom, shows up, and she's like, Peyton, give me back my baby. So there's a big showdown here where Peyton squares off with Claire. And again, Claire just popped her about six hours ago in the kitchen, so there's no love lost. And I love this ending. I got to say, Jessica, as, as goofy as this movie is, this ending kills. Yeah, um, it kills Peyton. Um, <laughs> but at, at a certain point, she has fireplace implements. Apparently, there are fireplace implements in the nursery, which, P.S., nice job on that one, too. Because I guess he can't crawl yet. He can't get into the fireplace implements. But, yeah, she's running around with a fireplace poker. And then, and then when the final showdown... Claire is stressed out because this is a stressful situation and she apparently has an asthma attack and Peyton can't help but lower the weapon and laugh at her a little bit and think, oh, she's finally going to die of her death asthma. But no, Claire is faking it. Yeah, I love this. I love this. Yeah, it's beautiful. And then Peyton goes out the window and down onto the fence that was being built in the very first scene, it all comes full circle. Yes. Solomon ends up killing Peyton. That's the thing. So, so, yeah, to sum up what you just said, Claire goes down, she's getting beat up, and she has an asthma attack like we saw earlier in the movie, and Peyton just can't resist. She l- lowers her weapon and starts taunting her. And what are the, some of the things she says? She says, says like, uh, you know, Claire, when your husband makes love to you, it's my face that he sees. It's like, no, it's not. It's like sandwiches and lab coats he's like this is the task i must do at work tomorrow that's what he sees yeah he's like he is not a complicated man he does not have a rich fantasy life yeah yeah so peyton falls for the fact that claire fakes an asthma attack and peyton turns around and tries to grab the baby and it's this great moment where claire is struggling for breath and then she just stops and looks up at the camera and she starts breathing normally and you realize oh crap she finally did it she finally did something smart and so uh i think peyton yells something at at solomon here something nice like uh give me my baby or i'll bash your skull in or something like that yeah and solomon's like i don't think i'm gonna do that nope (laughs) Yeah. That's one big Twinkie. It's <laughs> <Yeah>, so, <laughs> my Ghostbusters reference. Thank you. So anyway, yeah, so Claire tackles Peyton when she's not looking. Rebecca DeMornay goes flying out the house, uh, down the roof, and like uh, Jessica said, literally lands on the fence that Solomon was making at the first scene in the movie, which goes right back to the start of the movie where Solomon wins, and we have the, the movie ends with an impaled Rebecca DeMornay down on the lawn. It's a very happy, cheerful ending, and again... If you saw it in the theater, you probably cheered. It was it was probably a cool moment. Yeah, it's a very cool moment. And then there's the heartwarming moment in the in the sort of denouement at the very end where where Claire says, "Okay, we got to get down out of the attic, Solomon. I'm going to need you to take the baby." And Solomon's like, "But I'm not allowed to touch children anymore." And they're like, "No, no, no. It's okay. It's totally cool." And he's like, "Oh, somebody trusts me to handle a baby." And then we fade to black. And it ends with him dropping the baby, right? Um, possibly. And no, it actually, it ends with Michael down in the basement, like, guys, guys, a little help. Yeah, still broken legs. Michael, Michael bleeds out in the basement, and Claire marries Solomon, because he's more of a man that can support her. (laughs) So, 
It's a good happy ending. Now, it ends with everyone is happy and they get the baby back and Emma learns to love her mother and Peyton's dead and Solomon, they trust Solomon again and it's implied that he will forever be a part of their family. So, Well, he's got to fix that window so he's, he's at least around for another week. <laughs> oh, that's what I love about this movie, that they're, they're independent, woolly, wealthy. The mom does nothing ever and yet they can forever find some task to have Solomon do and they'll pay him to do it. Like, how much money are these people pulling in? I don't know, but well, I have to also imagine that the Better Day Foundation is not like forcing people to pay their people a living wage. They're subsidized. They're a nonprofit. Well, they at least have to give Solomon a hot lunch every day. Allegedly. And also, I should point out another thing that I just noticed when I was watching this movie today. They have so much move, money, independent wealth, and nothing to do, yet the dad drives the shittiest little yellow Volvo. <laughs> Couldn't you at least splurge for a nice car, dude? He has a. He should have a vanity plate. It just says Michael because he can't think of anything better. <laughs> car, my car. <laughs> so, so anyway, that is the story of the hand that rocks the cradle. One of the great Seattle movies from before Seattle got hip. One of these. Like we both said at the start, I think we both came into this with the the same intention. This is movie is like a fantastic psychological thriller, but also goofy as hell, like a mystery science theater movie at the same time. So much fun. I have never been bored watching it, and I just really hope if people have never seen it before, just give this one a chance. This is a fun watch. And if you haven't seen it since it came out, I would also urge you to give it a revisit because it was very much of its time in the best possible ways and the worst possible ways. <laughs> now, okay, now what what were the worst possible ways? I'm curious now that you mentioned that. Besides the breast pump technology. There's breast pump technology. There's just the fashion, how everybody wears these like huge slouchy coats everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, Julianne Moore's formal scrunchie. There's so many pleats everywhere, and everybody had that big brown barn coat. Like, women, this was, like, right on the cusp of grunge, but, like, yuppies still wore these, like, giant, like, stuff you'd wear to go clean out a barn. And there's a lot of big hair and a lot of bangs, and I enjoy that aspect of it. But then... There's also like there's a particular inflection that you only hear in 1990s psychological thrillers. And everybody has that inflection. I don't even know how to describe it. <laughs> I really hope that Michael embodies that because Michael, I just love these stupid lines that come out of his mouth this whole movie. Yeah, I mean, he's going to he seems like he should like gain 50 pounds and then 10 years later be on a sitcom with a hot wife. <laughs> Am I crazy or did I used to be married to Annabella Ciora? <laughs> and of course, we mustn't forget the, the greatest thing about 90s that was of its time where we put the rape victim's face and name on the news for everybody to see. It's a good thing we fixed that. Yeah, we fixed that one. So we've done something in the last 20 years in our society. So that's our one victory. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, everything is fixed forever now. All right, so uh, I know you said you had to run. You were going to go out and interview a nanny with no credentials tonight. So um, <laughs> anything else you want to add before we uh, sign off here, Hand the Rocks the Cradle? Always check your references. <laughs> yes. 
and never buy somebody's child a toy that makes noise. Yeah, seriously, the the toys that make the noise, you are a horrible person if you give those to a newborn. That's that's the worst. Was the toys that make the noise? That was the direct video sequel to The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, right? Yes, that was the sequel, and it's all from Emma's point of view, and uh, I'm sure Michael does something amazing in it. I wish I could think up something funny, but <laughs> it's all Michael. He spends the whole movie trapped in the basement with his broken legs, and people forgot he was there. Yeah, he accidentally locks himself in the bathroom for 90 minutes. <laughs> uh. All right, again, Jessica, thank you for joining me. That was a lot of fun. That was like the polar opposite of Oh God, which is a very gentle, sensitive movie, which is just the opposite of this one, which is a stabby cheese fest with uh, Solomon and Peyton. So, again, thank you for stopping by. These are always fun. Yeah, this was this was definitely not Oh God. <laughs> Although, could you imagine if John Denver had played Michael? Um, If John Denver had played Michael, he would have solved everything in the first five minutes because god would have been like yeah, don't hire that nanny and he would have been like okay yeah see this is a much better movie and again my name is mario lanza this is staff picks uh, if you need to reach me staff picks podcast at gmail.com you can reach me on twitter at mario j lanza and until the next time i talk to you i'll be out there searching for more movies that need a little more love hopefully featuring a hot nanny who likes to do fourth dimensional mind games with people <laughs> it's always the hope until then, I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Don't fuck with me, retard. My version of the story will be better. <laughs>